Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. like I do, you are blessed. However, if you have little kids in the home like I do, you also watch where you step. Especially if you got these little toddlers running around, two-year-olds and three-year-olds. They tend to leave uh, their, their toys, Legos and, you know, Lego blocks and just all sorts of different objects in the most random places, don't they? Uh, that can make you trip, they can make you stumble. And uh, one of, it's one of the reasons that I'm thankful that jacks, you remember jacks, those little metal jacks? Those aren't such a big hit anymore. I'm thankful for that. Um, they're plastic now, but they still hurt, I'm sure, when you break them. Um, did you know that the company Legos, they actually make slippers now? Like these heavy padded slippers for parents so that they don't step on Legos. It's a selling point, I think. Um, This week, for example, uh, my daughter was putting together a puzzle in this little narrow hallway in our house. I don't know why there, but it was like I had to step over her and her puzzle and try not to mess it up. But I had to do that several times. Well... You know, metaphorically speaking, that's sort of what we're going to talk about today as we look at some of the stumbling blocks that can trip up the advancement of the gospel. Have you ever heard of a stumbling block? In the Bible, a stumbling block could be defined as anything that we might do, someone or something that we do that would hinder someone else's relationship with God, or maybe keep them from coming to know a personal relationship with God. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We'll be in Acts chapter 21, verses 17, through the end of chapter 22. Okay, we're going to cover a lot of ground today, so fasten your seatbelts. We're going to skip a lot of details and just focus on the big storyline and the theme here. Um, This final section of the book of Acts uh, is... Uh, that we're entering into is replete, basically dominated with Paul's speeches during his arrest where he explains and defends his ministry as being faithful to God's call for him and um, God's plan. So the first thing we're going to look at here is uh, just Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, starting in verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard about them, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands There are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon, basically defect, apostatize Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come, and therefore do as we tell you. We have four men who have a vow upon themselves. Take them along and purify yourself together with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and then everyone will know that there is nothing to what they have been told about you but that you yourself also conform keeping the law. But regarding the Gentiles who have believed... We sent a letter, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols, 
and from blood and what is strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took along the men, and the next day, after purifying himself together with them, he went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. All right, so um, I know you don't have any questions about that, do you? <laughs> what we just read? Um, that's pretty, pretty full of information there, but Paul... He arrives in Jerusalem for the last time in the May in the in the spring in May of 57 AD and it's not just him it's thousands maybe tens of thousands myriads of Jewish pilgrims who are also ready to celebrate this feast called Passover 50 uh 50 de- 50 days um oh sorry it's not it's it's Pentecost, uh, after, after Passover, 50 days after Passover. So anyway, he receives a, a warm reception from the church elders there, along with James as the standout leader. And this is not James as in Peter, James, and John, like James the brother of John. This is James as in the half-brother, or half, half-brother of the Lord Jesus, who wrote the epistle of James in the New Testament. So he's kind of become a standout figure in the early church, or in this uh, church in Jerusalem. And uh, of course he would, he's, he's the Lord's half-brother, right? But when Paul reports on the work that God's been doing among the Gentiles, they praise God for it. They're praising God, the church is praising God for his work among the Gentiles. Uh, Paul was also finally able to deliver Uh, a love offering, a monetary gift, a donation from, remember he was going around the churches of Greece and uh, and Asia, and he was was taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. So these these Gentile, non-Jewish churches had uh, given a a gift to the highly Jewish church in Jerusalem that was uh, impoverished from persecution and various various aspects, but uh, the gift was symbolic of the unity that Paul's trying to foster between the Gentile and Jewish church, but it's also very practical in that, again, the Jerusalem church was, was highly impoverished at this point. However, uh, almost immediately, uh, without making any mention of how this gift was received, uh, or even if it was, we're just, we're launched into this delicate, what we might say, a sensitive situation. These, there's thousands of Jews in Jerusalem who are, they're in the Jerusalem church, right? These are, these are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. They're under the new covenant, but they still honor and practice Jewish customs in accordance with the Mosaic law, the old covenant. So they're under the new covenant. They don't have to keep the law, but they're doing it anyway. And they're actually very uh, zealous for it, so we we might think of them as being legalistic. Uh, at least that's that's what I pick up from it. The Mosaic Law, remember, this is that which God gave to Moses uh, for the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai. It contained the Ten Commandments, a sacrificial system, different you know, a code of ethics, that sort of thing. And even though these Jews are genuine believers, this old covenant of Moses is so deeply ingrained within their culture and national identity and their government system and their politics that it just doesn't go away. You know, they're they're still exposed to it constantly. And um, in fact, it was, this became an ongoing discipleship issue that just never really goes away. And uh, Paul in his letters, you'll notice he's just constantly, uh, it just seems like he's constantly teaching Jew and Gentile believers uh, as to how they should relate to the, the law of Moses. Uh, what's, what's our relationship as believers to the law? And uh, as Christians, we need to know we're not under the law. Uh, these Jewish Christians, they weren't under the law. And uh, Paul says that explicitly in his letters. Uh, no believer, none of these Jewish believers had to celebrate these feasts. Did Paul have to go to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts? No, absolutely not. He didn't have to go to the temple. But again, this was an ingrained uh, custom. And these Jewish believers had the freedom to keep the law if they wanted to. You know, freedom, 
from the law also entails freedom to keep the law, you know, if they really wanted to. So uh, I just trying to think about how hard this would be for them. This is the way they were raised. They're, this, is, this is their holiday system, right? Can you imagine us? I don't know. We grow up with Christmas for 40 years or so, and then all of a sudden, you know, it was a requirement for you to, to celebrate Christmas. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, 40, 50 years down the road, say, well, you don't have to celebrate Christmas anymore. What are you going to do? You're probably still going to celebrate Christmas, right? Just because. Well, that's what these Jews were doing. But this is, again, that doesn't even, that's not even, that's like a horrible comparison because this was tied to their political and national identity. And right now, things are really heating up between the Jews and the Romans, and it's only going to get worse to where in 10 years, that's going to start a big Jewish revolt, and then Rome's going to come and crush them. And so part of the reason why they're, they're, they're unifying the Jews under the law is because they're, they're taking a stance against Rome. They're setting themselves up as, as, a, as they're trying to be a sovereign nation, right? So um, it's a battle against Rome, too, but... Um, Anyway, these Jews were free to keep the law as long as it didn't become a requirement in any respect. You want to keep the law? Fine. Don't make it a requirement. Don't make it a requirement for salvation. Don't, don't make it a requirement for fellowship with Gentiles. Gentiles don't have to keep the law. So, uh, verse 25 makes it clear that this is also not about the Gentiles' relationship to the law. Uh, we know that because they, they reaffirm the decision of the Jerusalem Council from Acts chapter 15. Um, that is in uh, verse 25. You know, these, uh, these uh, four different things mentioned here. Uh, this is hearkening, echoing back to Acts chapter 15, right? There were some Pharisees who said that uh, unless you're circumcised according to the law, you can't be saved. And um, the council there in Acts chapter 15 decided, no, that's not true. Uh, the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles before they, you know, before they were baptized or anything, right? So, anyway, this, this technically isn't about, isn't about the Gentiles under the law. It's about, it's about Jews, Jewish believers who seem to be a little legalistic, a little overzealous for the law. And uh, while we're here... Let's just remind ourselves of the purpose of the law. Um, what's the purpose of the law? Is this to give us a list of things to do, you know, like the Ten Commandments? If we just keep the Ten Commandments, we'll be saved. If we just get circumcised or whatever. <laughs> that's what the Jews were saying. So circumcision... Uh, became a big deal. It became a huge stumbling block for these Jewish people because if you didn't get circumcised, well, then you were basically cast out. You weren't identifying with God's people Israel. And so they, they came to this, under, logically they concluded that, well, if we're not circumcised and I'm not part of the nation of Israel, then I, I must not be saved. You see how their logic worked? But that's what Paul writes in the book of Romans and he says, Abraham, the founding father, right? The father of their faith, he was... Uh, justified by faith before he was ever circumcised. So no one has ever been saved by being cir through circumcision or by keeping the law. In Christ, Paul says circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. Uh, the purpose of the law explained in Galatians and Romans wasn't to give us a list of things to do to be saved, where if I just keep this and this and this and this, then I'll be good enough to get into heaven. No, Paul says the law was designed to reveal, number one, God's holiness, God's righteousness, and expose our sinfulness, our unholiness, the fact that we are not like God and we could never be good enough. Uh, through our trying to keep the law, we come to an end of ourselves and, and, and say, whoa, I need, I need a Savior, right? The law... Paul says in Galatians 3 was designed to be a tutor, an instructor that led you to Jesus Christ, the one who kept the law perfectly, the sinless one, and he fulfilled it and died in our place. But anyway, these zealous Jews were upset with rumors 
And I, I emboldened the word rumors in your notes. Rumors of Paul teaching Jews to forsake the law and circumcision and the different customs. Now, Paul did teach Christians are not under law and they don't have to keep it, but the rumors are a stretch uh, and a distortion of what Paul was teaching. And it wasn't that he went around and commanded Jews not to keep the law. In fact, in the book of Acts, we've seen Paul respectfully honor the law at times, haven't we? And there was times where he circumcised Timothy. And uh, we've seen him take a vow, and a Nazarite vow. I mean, he felt free to follow Jewish customs when not around the Gentiles and when it was advantageous uh, in his outreach to the Jews. And 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23 says this, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, as, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having a law, right? Like a Gentile, though I'm, I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So through our following Christ, we actually end up keeping the law. It's interesting. But so as to win those not having the law, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. Who's the weak one? The weak ones who's who's is the more legalistic one, who's not quite settled in their freedom of, in God's grace in Christ. Uh, it'd be someone living under the law, thinking they still had to keep it. He says, to the weak, I become weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel so that I might share in its blessings. So, Paul has this mission policy where he tried to prevent unnecessary obstacles between him and the people he's trying to reach. If he's trying to reach the Jews and he doesn't, he's not honoring or respecting the law, right? They're not going to give him a word. Same with Timothy, right? They're not going to put up with Timothy if he wasn't circumcised. He wasn't going to be able to enter the synagogues and, and preach to the Jews. And so um, he's sensitive, you notice, to people's consciences and, and uh, just the neutral cultural practices. He had no problem following them. So uh, that's what he would do. Um, to not do that would be a stumbling block to the people he's trying to reach. And so that's the first principle that, that we've got here today is just avoid unnecessary stumbling blocks to the gospel. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust the Spirit of God this morning to help you understand what stumbling blocks, what the stumbling blocks are between you and the people that you're trying to reach with the gospel. It's going to vary from person to person. It's going to vary from culture to culture. And uh, if you want, Paul talks more about this subject in Romans 14. And uh, there's, a, there's an article uh, in the footnotes by Got Questions uh, that has a really helpful, brief summary on, on what stumbling blocks are. But uh, Paul is going to... Uh, show that he still respects the law by joining and actually becoming a patron of these four men. He's going to provide sacrifices for these four men who take uh, what appear to be a Nazarite vow with him, a vow that would uh, require him to shave his head and give it, uh, and, uh, offer it in the temple with different sacrifices. And uh, it would have been a week-long purification process for him. But uh, that gets cut short as we see it in Paul's arrest here in verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who instructs everyone everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in this city with him, and they thought that Paul had brought him into the temple. And then the whole city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut, and while they were intent on killing him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort, that would have been Claudius Lysias, uh, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And he immediately took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to the crowd. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered that he be bound with two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks. And when Paul got to the stairs, it came about that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. They had to physically just carry him. And uh, for the multitude of people kept following them, shouting, away with him, away with him. So uh, just as Paul is about to finish this, this vow, the seven days are almost over. Some Jews from Asia were likely Ephesus. I remember where the Paul spent three years and it ended with a huge riot. Well, some folks from that area likely uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem too, and they recognize Paul. They know Paul. They know Trophimus, and they stir up the crowd with two false charges. Number one, that Paul's teaching against the people, the law, and the temple. Uh, and then number two, that Paul brought a Greek, Trophimus, into the temple and defiled it. And it, neither one of these is true, or they're distortions of it. Uh, obviously, it's not true. He did not bring Trophimus into the temple. Uh, what you had in the temple area were several different courts um, where only Gentiles could go or only certain types of Jews could go, right? Uh, and, and at one point, there was a four-and-a-half-foot wall called the Soreg that only the Jews could go be beyond. It's, it's uh, indicated by those red lines there on that uh, picture. But on this wall was written in Greek and Latin warnings for Gentiles not to go beyond that point. Only Jews could go beyond there. Uh, in fact, in the last 150 years, archaeologists have found two of these markers, these little signs, near the Temple Mount, which read, No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade around the plaza of the temple area, and whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So if you're a Gentile, you go beyond this four and a half foot wall, you're going to die. And Rome actually gave Gentile or gave the Jews uh, permission to do that. I mean, if a Roman went beyond this line, they were dead. They were dead meat. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul speaks of this wall when he says that the partition wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down in Christ. In Christ, in the new covenant, Jesus Christ has broken down this barrier wall between Jew and Gentile. And you know what it says? He established peace. Peace. And made one new man. And we're both equal children of God through faith in Christ. Isn't that awesome? That, that's, this is only possible, the peace this burial wall coming down is only possible because Jesus Christ, it says, nailed the law to the cross. I think he calls it the certificate of decrees against us. I don't remember the terminology exactly, but he nails the law to the cross because he fulfilled it, thus establishing peace between Jew and Gentile. And there's a reason for that, right? Because the, the barrier came with the law. That was just one of those things. The Messiah... Accomplishing this, establishing peace and, and being crucified, this was a stumbling block to the Jews. And that's what 1 Corinthians one twenty three says. But uh, without question and without investigating, the, I mean, they, just the rumors spread again. And they just irately, they dragged Paul out of the temple area, uh, probably out of that, that center, and they drag him out into the court of the Gentiles. And they, and they start to beat him. And they're intent on killing him. And uh, Claudius Lysias, the, the tribune, the commander, the Kiliarch, uh, whatever you want to use for the title, he's stationed at the Antonia Fortress. It's that uh, uh, little four-tower fortress up here in the corner that was annexed on the northwest corner. Um, that was built there for a reason, because during Jewish festivals there would often be riots. That's exactly why it was there. And Claudius Lysias hears there's a riot, and so he sends 200 troops at least 
the scholars say, to put a kibosh to the beating and arrest of Paul. And this is the last time in the book of Acts that we are going to see Paul as a free man. He is arrested and he under cust- in custody throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And uh, we'll talk about his uh, subsequent release and rearrest as we come to uh, the last chapter in Acts, probably. But uh, if, if the soldiers hadn't stepped in, Paul, was a, Paul would be a dead man. And then one other thing I want us to notice is just how, how the, the, there's parallels between Jesus and Paul. Remember we talked about this a lot last week? It's like Paul's final journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. There's so many parallels between them. And uh, one of them here is this cry, away with him. If you go back to Luke, same author, Luke chapter 23, verse 18, what do they say about Jesus? Away with him. And Claudius Lysias is like trying to investigate Paul and figure out what's going on, and he's just confused, and man, he basically is a parallel to Pontius Pilate. You know, and he doesn't know what to do. He knows he's innocent, but what do you do, right? The Jews are just so irate, and uh, he folds. But Paul's defense is what we look at next. That's last. Paul's defense. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, uh, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and Father, hear my defense. That's the, the word for apologia, right? You ever heard of apologetics? A defense of the faith, which I now offer to you. So let's pause there and just think about the situation here. Paul is a, he's got to be barely standing there. He's been beaten, he's bloodied, he's been dragged around, I mean, by, Gent, or by the Jews and by these Romans. I mean, it's like tug of war for Paul. Um, probably has some black eyes. And, uh, you know, the, the picture in my mind is Jesus Christ standing before Pontius Pilate, just bruised and bloody as can be. And uh, interesting picture, isn't it? The parallel between what Jesus did and now where, where Paul is at, addressing the crowds. And uh, he, this Paul, he has every reason to be angry, to be belligerent, to be condemning of the Jews, to be defensive, uh, or resentful with his words. I mean, even the commander, the, the Kiliarch, thinks he's some Egyptian false prophet from three years ago who tried to capture Jerusalem. He was a false prophet type of guy. But, you know, by letting all of this get to him, the misunderstandings, the, the, you know, the, the misportrayal of who he is and his teachings, he could have let it all get to him and his emotions, and he could have blown his testimony and his opportunity to witness here. However, that's not what Paul does, at least in this case. Next week, we'll see his emotions get to him in chapter 23, but uh, Lord willing. But what you see in Paul here is gentleness and respect. And I think that's actually part of what gives him the opportunity to speak. It wasn't normal for, (laughs) for someone like Claudius Lysias to allow someone who's just got arrested to speak to people. But Paul is polite. He has composure. He has self-control. He's not letting his emotionally skewed sin nature distort his testimony here. It's like he doesn't even give a, give a hoot about himself and what they've done to him and how they've misrepresented him. And Actually, when he goes to give his defense, he doesn't even mention about Trophimus. He's like, I didn't bring Trophimus with me. And he doesn't defend himself. He's focused on (laughs) preaching the gospel. It's amazing, his witness here. Look at how kind he is and how polite he is. May I say something to you? 
You know, I beg you to let me speak to the people. And when he addresses the brethren and the, the, the Jewish people, he says, brethren and fathers. Wow. So, I don't know about you, but if I was in that position, I probably would have been a pretty angry man. And I would have wanted to defend myself. But um, Claudius lets him speak. And I think our principle here is that when we go to define, defend the faith, we want to be wise with our words. Be wise with our words. Control our tongue. Right? Tame the tongue, James says. Uh, by the Spirit of God, only the Spirit of God can tame our tongues, right? Have you ever been in a situation where you're witnessing to somebody and, and, and they just don't take it very kindly? You know, and they become very passionate, we could say, about what they believe. And they become very defensive very quickly. Well, in that moment, you've got to rely on the Lord to control your tongue. Learn to control your tongue by the Spirit of God. Our tongue, the way we use our words can be such a major stumbling block. And it can blow our opportunity to be a light for the gospel. Look at 1 Peter 3, 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer, an apologia, right? a defense, same word. Be prepared to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the hope, for the reason, for the hope that is in you. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, this is why I, why I love narrative in the Bible, and I'm, I'm learning to love it more and more is because you can get these epistles in the New Testament and there are letters that tell you exactly what to do. Here's the command. Here's the precept. But then you turn to the narrative stories and you start to see these, prince, or these, these commands lived out. You see the models, the examples of it, of what it looks like. It's just really neat. I've just really been picking up on that. Um, honestly, if I was ever asked to give some sort of seminar on evangelism, how to do evangelism. You know where I would turn now? Acts, the book of Acts. This is the Magna Carta on witnessing, on how to do it. Not just here's how to do it, here's the example of it. This is them actually doing it in the book of Acts. I mean, there's just I would go through all my sermons and just find all of these neat witnessing principles. I think it's just, you know, it's totally... Sufficient for witnessing. That's what I think the book. What I think of the book of Acts now. It is amazing. It's an amazing book. It teaches us so much about evangelism. Uh, Proverbs fifteen one and two say a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. See, we can, we can speak truth, we can speak knowledge, but if, we're, if our tongue isn't doing it in a loving way, what does Paul say it is in 1 Corinthians 13? It's just a noisy gong, right? You speak it, but, man, people don't, don't really listen to it. Uh, they hear a gong. As this is, I've just been thinking about this a lot. This is especially true during political season, isn't it? Wow. We get pretty passionate about our politics, and, and if we're not careful... We're going we're gonna to forget about evangelism. And we're going to use our tongue in the, <laughs> in the wrong way, the wrong way it's not supposed to be used. And we're going to find ourselves fighting against people that we should be trying to reach with the gospel. Okay, it's okay. We, we, if we care about people, we're going to take a biblical stance, aren't we? We're going to speak truth. But let's do it in a way that is, is loving. Speak the truth in love. Um, verse 2, let's, let's finish out this chapter. Uh, when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers. Our fathers, not just your fathers, our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all today. I persecuted this way, Christianity, the way. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brothers and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem 
as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that I was on my way, approaching Damascus at about noon. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. Did you catch that? At noon, a light flashed from heaven around him. Brighter than the sun. That's just kind of glory of God. Um, And he says, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Whoa. So when you persecute Christians, you persecute Jesus. Jesus takes it personally. And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told everything about everything that has been appointed. Remember, Paul's defending his calling. He's been appointed what has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I came into Damascus being led by the hand by those who were with me. Now a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Notice this reference to a devout Jewish Christian, devout by the standard of the law. Uh, came to me, and standing nearby, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I looked up at him, and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed, he has called you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear a message from his mouth. For you will be a witness. Witness. That's uh, 13 times that word is used in Acts. Remember, we're learning to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And uh, interesting, the word is martis in the Greek. M-A-R-T-Y-S. What's that? Does that remind you of anything? Martyr, right? It's a step in the direction for our word martyr. So you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on his name. And it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, When the blood of your your martyr, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing nearby and approving and watching over the cloaks of those who were killing him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's that's like a curse word. As soon as they heard that word Gentile, they thought, Oh, I remember why we're here. They listened to him up until this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a man from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered that he be brought into the barracks, saying that he was to be interrogated by flogging so that they would find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. You know, flogging with a flagrum whip, just like Jesus. It had metal bits in it and bone and and it tore your flesh. Some people wouldn't even survive the flogging. It was so bad. But another parallel between Jesus and Paul. But when they stretched him out with straps, they're getting ready to lash him, okay? Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship for a large sum of money. And it was probably under uh, Emperor Claudius because he offered it for a time. But uh, that's how he took on the name Claudius. But uh, Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. So he's even got to step up on Claudius here. Um, Roman citizenship, guys, it came with certain rights. Uh, to arrest and, or punish a Roman citizen uh, without cause or reason would mean these authorities are actually in really big trouble. And they already are. 
uh, because they've arrested Paul without reason. This is a Roman, and uh, you'll notice that uh, he's going to leave that out of his letter next week in his letter to Felix, that he arrested a Roman citizen, but uh, just conveniently leaves it out. But um, it's, it's his Roman citizenship that's actually going to lead him to Rome. It's actually going to give him a free ticket to Rome on a ship. But uh, therefore, verse 29, those who were about to interrogate him immediately backed away from him, and the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. So uh, this is the second of three times uh, where Paul states his testimony in the book of Acts. And there's a lot here that we could discuss that we just read, but for the sake of time, I just want to bring out Two principles. Uh, one is, no, first is just the heart of Paul. It has to do with the heart of Paul and his love for the Jewish people. If Paul should have considered any one his enemies, who do you think it should have been? The Jews. These antagonistic Jews have followed him around from city to city and harassed him and spoke evil of him, distorted his teachings. He's been beaten by them, stoned to death by them. He's received lashes from them. Paul is riddled with scars from the Jewish people that were antagonistic against believers in Christ. Can you imagine? He's already riddled with scars and he goes to Jerusalem anyway. Talk about a heart of love for this people. In, in, in Romans 9-11, through 11, Paul tells us how he feels about his Jewish brethren. And he said, He had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for them, so much so that he would willingly give up his own salvation if they would believe. Whoa, would you give up your salvation for anyone else? Talk about, oh, self-sacrifice, maybe? You see that? That's true love that Paul has for these people. Self-sacrificial love. His love was so great he was willing to sacrifice himself. And even through his ministry to the Gentiles, here's what he said, in his, in his ministry to the Gentiles, he magnified it because he hoped that through it, the, Gentile, or the Jews would see God's blessing on the Gentiles and, and would be moved or provoked to jealousies and so that some of them would be saved through it. But uh, our principle here is just self-sacrificially love your enemies. Self-sacrificially love your enemies. Uh, because if you don't, it's a stumbling block. Guys, we, we naturally want to curse those who don't treat us right. Right? Isn't that the way it works? Someone misportrays us, mistreats us, we want to we want to get back at them. We want to key their car. We want to make a post on Facebook or something like that, right? And let it be known. Air it out. Get the dirty laundry out there. Everybody stay away from this person. Look what they did to me. And you need to come to John's class again and learn how to handle that situation. But Paul and Jesus are prime examples for us. Jesus the epitome, right, on how to love self-sacrificially and not let our selfish, defensive anger and pride hinder the gospel from reaching even our enemies. Do you want to reach your enemies with the gospel? While we were enemies, Romans 5.10 says Christ died for us, even while we were enemies. Next, look at how Paul identifies with them. Uh, we've seen his love for them, now we see his identification with them. He speaks to them in their tongue, the Hebrew dialect. He calls them brethren and fathers. Right? Our, 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 you know, it's like he's identifying with them. He talks about his education under Gamaliel. This is the most highly respected Jewish teacher in the first century. Everybody knows Gamaliel. He's the grandson of Hillel, this other famous teacher. He knows the law well because he was educated. Um, he's not ignorant of what the law says. He knows it full well, probably more than some of them do. Uh, he, he, too, persecuted the way. He was zealous for the law. And in essence, he's saying, look, guys, I was where you are now. 
And he's not doing that in an arrogant way. He's saying, look, I was exactly like you. I used to persecute people like me. And the only difference is a life-changing encounter with the living, resurrected Christ. That's the only difference. The Christ who called him to minister to both Jew and Gentile in accordance and in fulfillment of God's law. Here's my point for us. Identify with those you are trying to reach. Identify with those you're trying to reach, when you're, those whom you're witnessing to. Sometimes, guys, the longer we are Christians, the easier it is to start thinking we're better than you know, all those sinners out there. You ever get to feeling that way? Yeah, like Christian pride. Christian pride, uh, you, know, the, you know, looking down your nose at others. And that is a major stumbling block. That's why right, so many people, they say, I won't go to church because of all the hypocrites, right? They look down at others, and I can tell they're a sinner too, right? So um, we've got to guard ourselves with that. Uh, we tend to spend, you know, the, after you get saved, you know, you, you re- outreach to all your friends and your family, and then you start to get into Christian circles, and about that's about all you spend time with anymore as Christians. And so you start to develop this mindset that it's us versus them. And that's a really unhealthy way to think about evangelism. It's not us versus them, red versus blue, right? That's what we get into this mindset this time of year. It's not us versus them. It's us trying to reach them, right? Us trying to reach them, to help keep us from that way of thinking. We need to remember constantly that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done for the Lord, every single one of us is a sinner, Saved by God's grace. And we serve God. We live for God. How? By His grace. It's just grace. You know the difference between you and your greatest enemy out there? Think of them. Put them in your mind right now. Think of your greatest enemy. Who is it? You know that person at work that grinds your gears, whatever it is. You know the difference between you and that person that you can't stand to talk to or be around? That, that unbeliever, you know, that gives you a hard time. The difference? Grace. It's just God's grace. Right? Aren't, aren't we all dug from the same quarry? Sinners? We come from the quarry of sin. It's not that, that we just, not, it's not that just that we do sin, it's that we're Sinners. You know, not just what we do, it's who we are. We all have a sin nature. We all, by nature, are children of wrath, the Bible says, enemies of God. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So to look down our, at our, look down our nose at someone else just doesn't make any sense, does it? Because the only difference between us and them is God's grace. And the only reason I, I have any sort of victory over my sin nature today is because of God's grace. That's the only difference between you and your enemy. Remember, guys, our struggle is not not with flesh and blood. It's not red and blue. It's spiritual forces of darkness hindering people from coming to know the Savior. Spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Paul says. It's the forces of darkness. Unbelievers, the Bible says, are, are blind to the knowledge of God. How dare us put a stumbling block in front of blind people through our pride, right? So, uh, what about, uh, what is it, Second uh, Timothy 2, 26. It says, unbelievers are held captive to do Satan's will. They need, what they need is God's grace so that they can be born again and then learn to live for God. So, how... how you know, don't be surprised when you look at an unbeliever and see them living an unbelieving lifestyle. Right? They need the gospel. Uh, one of my friend or uh, my mentors, I about said friend tours. He's a friend and a mentor. Um, uh, he he used to imagine a neon sign that flashed above people's heads. Right? When he like he saw an unbeliever, whatever, 
He used to see a sign above their heads that was flashing, help, I'm deceived. I need Jesus. You see, everyone you look at out there, you know, we tend to see us versus them. Instead, how about it's, we see people not as like our, outrightly rebelling against God all the time. Some people just haven't even heard the good news. You know, they haven't heard the gospel. Or if they have heard the gospel, they've heard uh, kind of a misconstrued version of it. Right? It, was a, it was a kind of a gospel and works type of gospel. Or maybe they were just really turned off by the person who presented it to them. Right? It was, I mean, the distorted version of the gospel is either by the message or the character of the man who presented it to them and it turned them off. So we've got to both preach the gospel and we've got to live the gospel. They could preach it by the way we live. But um, as a closing challenge, I'd encourage you to share your testimony with someone. Kind of like Paul. We see him throughout his, this, 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 this time in his life, he's going to share his testimony over and over again. And uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about yours. And if you, if you haven't, if you're a new believer, maybe think about your testimony. Maybe write it out if you haven't. Think through it. Process how God has worked in your life. Remember, it's one of these things that you, you develop, but you kind of keep it flexible and you, you use it in your witnessing. And uh, when you go to write your testimony or you, you go to share it, please don't make it one of these. I don't know why this is, but don't make it. This always happens, but don't make it one of those, I used to be a bad person and now I'm a good person type of stories. What do people think when they hear that? They, they, all they do is think, I have to be good enough to get to heaven like this person. But again, the difference is only God's grace. So talk about you as a sinner being saved by God's grace. Right? Just... It's grace that saved you. It's grace that allows you to continue to live for Him. So tell them all about God's grace. Identify with them. I'm a sinner too. But it's only God's grace that keeps me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for your word, these ancient words that are ever true. I pray that they would change us here today and this, this message would go home in our hearts. I'm sure that you have had a word here uh, for everyone or wherever they're at in life. Um, Lord, we're thankful for your grace since we're talking about it so much. It's your grace that saved us. It's your grace that carries us week in and week out, day in, day out. And it's only your grace that's going to allow us and enable us to be a good witness for you in this world. And uh, Lord, even when we do stumble in our witnessing or in our lifestyle, we do something that's worth stumbling over, help us just to be honest about it at least demonstrate the gospel by the way that we are are known for being an honest and repentant bunch of people. Um, Lord, give us opportunities, I pray, um, to share the gospel with folks and to uh, share our testimony of how amazing your grace is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.